Ed Trusted, Season 1, The Critical Race Theory Craze That is Sweeping the Nation, Episode 6, No Time for Silence. We're talking about culturally responsive teaching. That's the CRT that we're focused on. All that other stuff that people are out here trying to hijack, it has nothing to do with the work we've been doing. We just want to teach history, and we're not going to allow for the political rhetoric to try to dismantle the truths around what really happened and how we got here. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. This is the sixth episode of a new podcast, Ed Trusted. In this first season, we're talking about the accusation that the nation's schools have been taken over by an ideology bent on racial division and the political indoctrination of children. That accusation has prompted something on the order of half the states to in some way move to restrict the instruction schools provide students, according to an analysis by Education Week. Today, we're going to hear from some students and from three superintendents who disagree both with the accusation and with the proposed restrictions. Because students are in school during the time we recorded this podcast, we recorded them earlier and we'll be bringing in their voices to enrich the conversation Tangie and I will have with two superintendents, Dr. Mark Bedell, superintendent of Kansas City, Missouri, and Dr. Louvelle Brown, superintendent of Ithaca, New York. Welcome, both of you. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. Likewise. Thanks for having us. So we're actually going to start with a third superintendent, Dr. Tricia McManus. Dr. McManus is currently superintendent of Winston-Salem Forsyth County Public Schools in North Carolina. I got to know her when she was assistant superintendent in Hillsborough County, Florida, which is one of the largest school districts in the country. And if you'd like to hear more from her, you can hear a conversation Tangie and I had in our Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times podcast. I'll link to the episode in the show notes. She very much wanted to be part of this conversation, but like the students, Her schedule didn't allow us to include her. I talked with her on the weekend, and this is what she had to say about the criticism that schools have been taken over by a woke mob bent on labeling white people as oppressors and racists. The way it's being described is is actually not what's happening at all. Um, But we can't look at our data in public school systems across this country, and I'll speak for the two that I have been part of, and say, okay, let's just do business as usual. Um, because there are major racial achievement gaps and disparities in data from literacy data to other academic achievement data to discipline data. You can't have that data and then just ignore it and say, you know what, there may not be issues related to race. You you can't ignore that and, and actually call yourself an educational leader. And so what we're trying to do in my system and in the system I was, in, I was part of before is figure out how to actually break down or dismantle any practices, any policies, any systems or structures that actually could hold a group of students back. It's ob- There's obviously something wrong when you have 30% 30% achievement gaps between black and white students, Hispanic and white students. And so that's what we're trying to do in, in my system is uncover the root cause of those disparities and then actually tackle those. Um, it is not trying to make a race of people feel bad. It's about looking at where we are now and changing system structures, practices, policies so that we don't keep these disparities happening in the future. So you heard what Dr. McManus said, Dr. Brown. Does what she say resonate with you? Is that the work you're doing in Ithaca? Yes, uh, her work resonates with me. Her words resonate with me. Thank you for this opportunity to share and to learn. Um, I would say that not only is the work resonating here in Ithaca, but it's resonating in school districts across the country. You see, we have been asked to look at our data I'm going back to 2002, um, No Child Left Behind, where it asked us to, that new word at the time, I guess it's a new word, disaggregate. When we were asked to disaggregate our data and look for discrepancies according to race and according to class. And when and if we saw discrepancies, 
we were required by law to do something about it. I also remember that, you know, back in 2015, we were asked to do something very, very similar by the Every Student Succeeds Act. And that particular law asked us to not only do something about it, but it also went so far as to say, you will have sanctions if you don't do something about those educational discrepancies or uh, gaps or a lack of achievement. See, the term educational equity was baked into the federal law at the time. And as I sit here today, there are people who are saying we can't use that term equity. So yeah, her words resonate. Um, we've been asked by the law to do exactly what we're doing. And it was actually referred to as equity. What I say is happening in our country right now, people are writing laws to tell us to stop following the law. So uh, from my perspective, yeah, the words resonate and it should resonate with anyone who's leading and following the laws that govern our schools. Well, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for coming. Um, you're in a state that has one of these divisive concept laws. Um, and that's what they're being called. Um, and it was, well, you don't have the law. It was legislation introduced into Missouri. Um, it is right now uh, not law yet, but it may be reintroduced next session, if I understand correctly. But your State Department kind of acted on the divisive concepts legislation. Can you talk about what it did and, and how you responded? Yeah, so we actually had a bill that was filed in committee and it never made it out of committee that was designed to address critical race theory, 1619 project, anything dealing with terminology that would be, be deemed as being divisive. And <clears throat> recently, uh, after the session concluded in May, there was a joint committee hearing that occurred, I want to say, probably the end of July or either early August, first of August or second or something in that range, where our commissioner of education was summoned in um, to speak about uh, what districts were doing in this area. And I know I was one of the superintendents that that was invited to have this conversation with her because I've been very vocal um, in terms of, of how do we protect our ability to be able to just teach general history. And um, the audience that was there in Jefferson City was an audience that honestly only folks on one side of the issue pretty much were invited. Uh, so then you got your one or two that may have come in neutral or maybe even on the other side that critical race theory is not a curriculum because that's what they're basically um, posing it as, is that it's a curriculum, it's, it's, it's designed to shame uh, white students and to shame white families. And it's so far from the truth. And the thing that I share with people is that uh, we had a survey that we had to complete and uh, 425 school districts filled out this survey. And I think my district was the only one that pretty much responded yes to both questions, one on critical race and one on 1619 project. We're one of 40 districts in the country that received the 1619 project grant. We utilized that to do social activism projects with our students during the summer which was approved by the state of Missouri. And then as far as critical race theory, I tell people it's not a curriculum, but there are tenets within critical race theory that are discussed and that are discussed and approved curricula. Uh, and at least for us, we've had an African-centered college preparatory program since 1992. So we discuss a lot of how structural racism plays out, whether it's in health, whether it's in wealth, economics, you know, housing. So these aren't new things that are being discussed. And if it was a problem that people were feeling like they were being shamed within our community, then one would have thought that there would have been some complaints to the Board of Education. One would have thought that there would have been complaints at the state level, uh, at the federal level. So it's really more around what's happening with the likes of, of, of Christopher Rufo and people like that that are trying to hijack this term uh, to make it seem divisive when it really goes back to what the two previous superintendents talked about. We're talking about culturally responsive teaching. That's the CRT that we're focused on. 
all that other stuff that people are out here trying to hijack, it has nothing to do with the work we've been doing. We just want to teach history and we're not going to allow for the political rhetoric um, to try to dismantle the truths around what really happened and how we got here. Tanji, I'm sure you have questions. Yeah, actually, no, I don't have questions. I just have an applause um, because I'm glad uh, Dr. Bedell said he's focused on the culturally responsive teaching, and that's the CRT he's focused on because when people are using the singular acronym CRT, it is causing conflation and it is causing people to unnecessarily, well, not unnecessarily, but um, well, definitely unnecessarily, but it's causing people to attack work that's being done at the expense of raising illegitimate complaints about things that are not being done, right? So the, so if, if what's been going on in Kansas City has been going on all this time, where has the angst been? Why is it now so convenient for there to be anxiety around who has discomfort and who has not? who does not have discomfort? Why are we okay with black and brown students learning in schools and being culturally violated for centuries when now we're all, they, nobody concerned about that. So, but now we're concerned about groups of white children who may or may not feel discomfort. I, so I don't have, a, I don't have any questions. I'm just glad to hear that it's being done. Um, and I'm just really excited to understand one thing, how'd you bring the community involved to the to the table to help them understand how you took this African-centered idea to fruition? Because that's a really important piece. The other thing I'm really glad to hear is this distinction between the tenets of cultural a critical race theory versus it being taught as an actual curriculum. Because you teach history doesn't mean you're teaching critical race theory. You're teaching history. And there are, as you said, specific tenets. And so I'm glad that you're doing that. And I'm glad to hear about the distinction. But how did you bring the people along? That's a great question. <laughs> well, I, I think for us, it's simple. Um, I shared with people when I got this job in 2016 that I was more conscious of the fact that I'm a black man living in Kansas City than anywhere else I've ever lived. And I've lived in Rochester, New York. I've lived in Nashville, Tennessee. I've lived in Houston, Texas. I've lived in Baltimore, Maryland. And the way that, the way that race plays out here in Kansas City, it was just different. But I think what I have always done was always stick to facts, right? Graduating from Fisk University, you know, I'm an African history major. So this this is this is my stuff like you and you and my world right now when you start trying to attack us on what should be taught and not be taught. But I hit them with these these five facts. That I think it's important for everybody to hear. And these are facts that nobody can dispute. 1821. Missouri, Missouri was founded as a slave state. 1821. That's a fact. In 1847, the legislator of Missouri passed an act that prohibited Negroes and mulattoes from learning to read and write. That's a fact. Even after the emancipation, following the end of the Civil War in 1965, laws were put on the books that freed African-Americans could not be educated with whites, right? Now, listen, I just spoke this morning to some very wealthy white men, and I went through the same list with them um, in a conversation about our position that we've taken on what people are trying to hijack in terms of what we should be teaching. Furthermore, redlining, something I've been talking a lot about, began here in the early 1930s with J.C. Nichols. Redlining basically divided this city where we have a divider line, east of truce, west of truce, of which everything east of truce outcomes and everything pretty much are dictated by poverty, right? Intentionally done. That would then become a blueprint for how you redline around the country. And then the fifth fact that I give people is this building that I'm in at 2901 Truce, this is former slave quarters. So to sit here and to try to pretend or to try to whitewash history um, in a way 
that is already not inclusive in our current textbooks that this stuff didn't happen. We didn't get here because we didn't want to be educated. We didn't get here because you know we were shut out because we couldn't generate generational wealth on our own. We didn't get here in this position where economic development is so unbalanced that we can't even have affordable housing. I have a 100% free and reduced lunch school district. And my kids want to know, how did we get to where we are? How is this generational? And it's not just black kids. I got white kids and white families saying, we recognize the atrocities that have occurred in the past. and we But we have to be educated and equipped on how we can all work together to make this a better city for all. So when I hit people with those facts, it, it's you, you, you know, you. It's hard to come back at this point. You just in denial because you don't. You want to. You want to dismiss the facts to stay on your position around the political rhetoric, and it is hard for anybody to come back when you hit them with those five facts. Even the the co- the cognitive dissonance that we learned about is not enough to maintain ignorance, right? When you're hit with such such striking truths that are factual um, and evidence-based and you can find them right in all of your documents you then like you say you make a choice to stand within your ideology to continue a political goal um and 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 karen what we've been hearing is that's exactly what the heart of this is about this is not about protecting certain groups of students versus other groups at the end of the day we have heard from lawyers and we've heard from teachers we've heard from district leaders that this is about voting that this is about maintaining a particular voting block in the coming election this is about maintaining avenues and structures of power. And it's really about the fact that a lot of people, particularly white people, struggle very much about this American identity that we've been forcing down the mount, down the minds of our folks for centuries. We've decided that America is a certain thing and any challenge to that identity structure is always met with fierce, fighting and fierce challenge. Um, And we can even link this to the current uh, data around the census. And so we are now in a fight for what America looks like and what it means to actually be one. And this constant fight around so-called critical race theory in the classroom is all about challenging the notion of what America says she is or is not. So, yay. So I I actually want to go back a little bit to something Dr. Brown said, because I thought he put it in this uh, very succinct way that I hadn't I hadn't really put together before. You have been ordered by federal law to address equity in your schools. The minute and, and really, it's taken a very long time for schools to actually embrace that. I'm, I'm not saying you, uh, but, but for schools across the country, that has been a hard lift. And it feels like just as there's a little bit of momentum, and I wouldn't even call it a lot of momentum, but just as there's a little bit of momentum to actually address some of the, you know, what Trisha Mc, McManus called the structures, the systems, the policies— We've got this really deep backlash, um, and I, I just thought the way you put that you you you're they're passing laws to tell you to ignore laws. Um, I just hadn't put it together quite in that way before. Um, Me now, either. Yeah. Um, now in New York, you're not really facing that kind of law, are you? Oh, it's one of those moments when I'm forgetting I'm a panelist because I'm learning so much from the folks on the call. So thank you for uh, being including me in this space. And that brother Bedell always dropped something new that I haven't heard. No, in New York State, we aren't facing a law, but we are facing a culture, which oftentimes is much harder to navigate than uh, the law. Because we all are navigating a dominant culture and a dominant narrative that will push back whenever there is some resistance, and particularly resistance from those who have been traditionally marginalized. Right now, 
folks are sharing their perspectives and the people who are sharing the perspectives, which is creating the resistance are the folks who have been traditionally marginalized and oppressed. So yeah, in my school district, we have a vision for thinking. And you you can summarize thinking into some simple rules, distinctions, similarities, relationships, and perspectives. And for every idea, for every standard, for every system, we should be looking at it for, for differences, similarities, relationships, and perspectives. Right now, history is an idea. History is a, a system, and it's something we should be navigating the different perspectives. So yes, I, Dr. Bedell, we bring a different perspective on history because we have been traditionally marginalized, and we have been, you know, frankly, ignored um, in most history books. We're now sharing our perspective. Now, we're not invalidating other perspectives, We're not telling anybody else that they're wrong, but I think it's important for us in support of thinking to share our perspective. Now, if you want to have a debate and to tell me that, you know, the Serviceman Readjustment Act of 1944, also known as the GI Bill, did, you know, we're all asked to teach that particular standard in our schools because it was the key to generational wealth. Now, that is from a perspective. Yes, for folks coming back from the war, they had access to unemployment benefits. They had access to zero interest or low interest loans to start businesses and homes. Yeah, from that perspective of the dominant culture and narrative, it was the access to the American dream. But from my perspective and the perspective of my uncles who came back from that war, we were shut out from that particular law and that particular access to the American dream. So it's important for folks, young people in our schools today to hear the different perspectives so that they can then be thoughtful in their work that they produce going forward. They can be thoughtful in the conversations that they lead. I think, you know, we people are making a, a, the biggest issue right now is that we're assuming that our young people can't handle conversations about different perspectives. To assume that young people are going to feel bad because we presented them thinking is, you know, that's flawed at, at its inception anyway. So I trust our young people to take these different perspectives, to navigate them, and then to, and then to present their thoughts and perspectives on what's happened and what we're going to do going forward. So we actually have a couple of students. I recorded them over the weekend. And um, if, my, if Mike can play the, the clip of Avery, let's see if, she, if he can. Hold on. Karen? Yeah. I just have to say this to the audience. Like Ravel Brown's like one of five superintendents that I look up to. I've been in this business as a superintendent for six years. This guy is something else. I just I just have to say that. Oh man, likewise, brother. I love you, man. I I believe we've found a mutual admiration society here. I think we have. <laughs> yeah, man. It's a brother. Much love to you. I tell him that all the time. I learn every time I hear this dude open his mouth. So there's some things today that I just learned that will be going in my notes that I have here as I continue to have this conversation. Well, and you know, I should I should explain how I came up across you because we are not uh, we we don't know each other. Um, but I asked a very, very well respected superintendent in Texas who I have um, met and talked with over the years. And I said, who who would be good to talk to? with about this topic and he named both of you. So that's how, that's how I, uh, that's how I was able to, to find you both. And, and I guess you've worked together before I gather. No, we never worked together. We just, Oh no, you never did. Okay. You, so it's a, it's a, okay. We we presented together. (laughs) We've done some things like that. And um, I think just that mutual relationship formed from there. All right, let's see if Mike can play this clip. First of all, we talk about the American Revolution a lot. So when people say there's no room in the curriculum, I mean, I can find some room right now. Like we talked about the American Revolution like so many times, maybe every year, every other year for the 13 years that I've been in public school. Um, And in terms of the way we talk about race, um, I mean, not just for African-American history, I think it's important to understand the ways that the United States was involved in Latin America and created conditions for so many people to have to seek asylum here. Um, we talk about slavery 
Um, we talk about reconstruction a little bit, but I mean, not to the extent that we should. We don't really talk about the backlash that came after it um, and the campaigns in the South to kind of undo all of that. We don't talk about the new permutations of slavery. And I think that's so important. There's not enough emphasis on the sharecropping system. There's not enough emphasis. Like, we don't understand the extent, like the convict leasing system and how that became like a new permutation of slavery. I think we mentioned in class once that if you uh, were standing around or something, like they could arrest you for loitering, but they just don't uh, explain to the extent. We talk about the civil rights movement and then in our curriculum, that's when racism ended, the civil rights movement. And that's about it for school. And we don't talk about anything with like Asian Americans. And as far as indigenous people, we talk about the Trail of Tears and that's it. So that this is I, I think she is demonstrating what you said, Dr. Bedell and Dr. Brown. Students can handle this stuff. This is a wonderful um, student. She just graduated from high school from one of the school districts in the country that's often touted as uh, one of the top um, uh, academic uh, districts and very progressive district. And you can hear she really doesn't learn much history. She has gone out and learned it on her own, basically. And here's another um, uh, another African-American young woman who uh, they're both heading off to college this year. Um, and here's, here's, um, here's what she has to say. And now we're getting upset with the way we're teaching history right now, which is pretty devoid of race. Like as a whole, we talk about the civil rights movement. We talk about the civil war. Uh, and the, you know, the message that we got from our teachers was, oh, you know, when Lyndon B. Johnson signed the civil rights act, racism was solved. We can stop talking about race now. Um, and so to see parents getting so upset about what their kids are, it's just kind of like, you don't even, you don't even know, you know, what, what we could be learning, what we should be learning. And, and later she said this. So it's not really a surprise that we're seeing the pendulum swing all the way in the opposite direction of like, we shouldn't talk about race at all because it makes my white student feel bad in the classroom. Um, which I think for a lot of kids, especially kids of color, um, we were just in utter disbelief because I think we've been made to feel incredibly uncomfortable based on our background, like in just the way we talk about race in the classroom. And so it's kind of weird seeing it coming from the other side of like, well, what, what do you mean you feel uncomfortable? We're catering our history education to make you feel comfortable. And that's excluding everybody else. So again, I think... Kids can handle this, right? Students are students are on this. And I, um, you know, when I hear that, uh, those those voices and the same voices I'm hearing from young people in my school district, yes, they are struggling with us as a, the adults in the system that has not allowed for them to talk about race. But I also hear them saying, even in those comments, there are intersections that we don't even address. So, in addition to ethnicity, we aren't talking about gender. We're not talking about orientation. We're not talking about class. You see, I know of many young people who are, you know, kids of color who are gender nonconforming, growing up in poverty and do not subscribe to Christianity. They are getting marginalized, oppressed and excluded from our curriculum, from the environment and from our pedagogies. Even the ways in which we teach is consistent with the dominant narrative and culture. So this is much more than conversation about history and history standards and whether or not we're going to talk about black and white and race. This is about young people, the most diverse generation of our lifetimes, the most empowered generation of our lifetimes that are empowered to recognize their own identities. And what we're saying by law in many states is there's only one identity. And if you aren't going to subscribe to that identity and that culture and that narrative in our schools, then there is no place for you. And our young people have had enough of that. So how, at some point, our generation has got to turn this power and control and voice over to them because frankly we failed miserably to even elevating the conversation beyond race it's interesting because i was i'm listening to what you just said and i'm thinking about the comments from the students and you know as we have gone around and engaged our students one of the things we heard uh repeatedly was that they don't feel that 
while we say we're inclusive as a district, while we say that we're culturally responsive and that is a part of our strategic plan, they don't necessarily see it play out in, in the curriculum that's presented in front of them. And so I'll give you a prime example. We got two courses that we'll be introducing. Um, one is a Latinx heritage history course that solely focuses on our Latinx and, and immigrants and families that have come here, um, you know, with a Hispanic ba background. And then we also are offering an African-American history course. Both of these are gonna be elective courses. Um, we're probably targeting 11th and 12th graders um, to take the courses. We've engaged community. We brought in students from our student district advisory committee to help us weigh in on what this curriculum should look like. Um, it's already been approved and vetted by the state. Uh, but, but I think to Louvelle's point, we have to think about the inclusivity of all, right? And a lot of us will talk about all means all, but we say that only in verbiage, but not necessarily in practice. And that's the piece that I know we all have to be more intentional on um, that it doesn't necessarily result. Cause I think what we often do, and I, I talk about this, we, it's so easy for us to assimilate into the dominant culture's norms because that's kind of, I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of what we've been raised under. I'm reading uh, The Miseducation of the Negro again. It reads so different from 1995 to the way that I have, that it's reading now. And it's just opening my eyes to so much around, you know, what Carter G. Woodson talked about in 1933 and how all of that stuff still plays out. And what's my role in it? You know, as an educated Negro, what is my role? And, and am I hurting or am I helping? Right. So it's, it's just a lot. It's a lot to talk about. But we, we talk about inclusivity and that is that is kids who show up in ways that are not normal to us. How do we embrace that um, in our school systems that it's OK for you to be you? I think that's a great point. And one of the things listening to Dr. Brown talk about it, um, when we say that students, we don't allow them space. It's a matter of educators holding on to two things. Number one, they're holding on to their instructional power in the classroom as individual instructors. And then they're holding on and protecting the institutional power. So the dynamic is one of, I'm, gonna, I'm going to hold on to the space where I feel the most powerful, which is my classroom. But then because I am um, an authority of the state and of the institution, I also feel this sense of responsibility to protect the institution itself. And so you hear about a teacher who, because he does not believe in gender nonconformity, um, is not going to refer to his students in the way they want to be called. Right. But that's that person. That's a prime example of them holding on to a, a form of instructional power and institutional protection under the guise of, well, I love every student except my values and views say I can't do this one thing. So who's sitting underneath the all that you really, really care that much about? And so I think in this conversation, it's really important to be pushing against what we say is inclusive and what we act as inclusive. Um, and really stepping back and asking ourselves, how do we understand our own notions of what it means to be to, to allow students to practice agency and allow them to step into their empowered selves, which I think is something kids are um, not going to wait too long much for. <laughs> they're not they're tired, as Mr. Brown said, and as Mr. And Dr. Brown said, they're not having it anymore. They're just going to push against it and keep pushing and pushing until the structures themselves allow the space for them to be who they really are. And yet, here we are. <laughs> there is this enormous backlash, mm -hmm. right? That's right. And it's so next uh, our next episode we're going to be talking with some historians about how this is not the first time uh, that there's been this kind of um 
uh, backlash against some movement in in education, and it probably won't be the last time. It is a particularly powerful one, I think, in part because you've got uh, somebody mentioned Christopher Rufo. Christopher Rufo is funded. He is, um, you know, he is a an a bit of an avatar for a whole intellectual movement that has a lot of money behind it. And then this, um, you know, these angry parents, some of them aren't parents even, but angry people who may not even realize that they're being part of a funded operation. They may think that they're all operating on an individual level, reacting to some lesson that some teacher said somewhere or, you know, some uh, reading assignment or something, but it's actually part of a larger, you know, movement. And they're going to get teachers fired. They already have. Uh, They're going to get superintendents fired. They're going to get school board Mm -hmm. members recalled Mm -hmm. and um, elected out. It's how, what's the answer to that? I mean, part of the answer I think you both have sort of indicated is you got to just stand up for against it. And Tricia McManus also and and talk about what you do and talk about how you do it without apology and without um, defensiveness, but just sort of saying this is what we really have to do. But how are other you know, are, are you hearing from other superintendents who are who are doing this? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100 percent. It's a playbook. And that playbook has uh, is, has been in development for a long time. They're well ahead of, of of those of us that are now just, you know, become it's becoming something that's becoming mainstream and aware. But that playbook, uh, you know, includes the likes of Alex. I mean, it's you got no left turn. You got a you got a number of, you know, there's I've, I've read stuff about the Koch brothers. You know, I have to do a lot of this political mapping here because I live in a highly competitive charter environment. And so, you know, being able to see how that playbook has played out and honestly, from a legislative standpoint, how legislation is designed to really disadvantage one entity over another. That's really what they're doing with this playbook is they're trying to take it not only at the highest levels of of elected officials within your state, right? But even as you drill down to local control, because part of your issue is you don't have a lot of uh, legislation that impedes local control, right? Now, you can have state law that then becomes the law that governs what local school districts can do or whatnot, but the way you influence local school districts is to do exactly what you said, Karen, and that is to get people recalled or to run your slate of candidates through folks who can highly fund it. So, you know, you you got unlimited money um, behind this. And the only way that you're going to be able to overcome this onslaught of what's happening is, in my opinion, superintendents and board members and community members who really, truly have an understanding of what needs to happen in these schools have to become, we have to come together and we have to align. You can't do this where you got the superintendent in Dallas ISD suing the state of Texas because they've already passed bills or a potential superintendent in Oklahoma, which is a bordering state of Missouri, uh, because of House Bill 1775 that passed that you're not even allowed to talk about um, the, the, the Tulsa riots. Right. I was in Tulsa on on that on, over there at Green Green Greenwood. I was there with my family getting ready to go into the museum when that bill passed on a Friday. So until we can all mobilize together, because if we all try to do this, if if, if the Hinojosa in Dallas is trying to do this on his own, it's going to be a struggle. We all have to come together. And that and I have already started getting, uh, I haven't revisited it, but right prior to mid-January, or I mean July, I did hop on a call with Hinojosa and Aaron Spence out in um, Virginia Beach. And then Louvelle and I met with a number of superintendents at the end of July, 
where this was part of our agenda that we talked about. But we got to bring each of us got to start bringing in three or four people so that we can have an alliance and we can intellectually come back at this. Um, and that's the only way we're going to be able to, to, to slow this down. And, and I would add, um, it's important for us to think about how we come at this, not what we come at it with. What we must do for the folks who we may completely disagree with is validate and affirm them in some ways. We can't be quick to create a situation where it's us versus them or telling folks that they're wrong. We got, yeah, this is coming from a place. Yeah, whether it's coming from a place of folks feeling like their history has been erased or feeling like that the classroom has come a place where their humanity is being ignored. I know what that feels like. And when I, when, when I felt that, I have been at board meetings and so have my parents for generations and my elders saying, yo, this ain't right. So if that's what folks are feeling, let's just validate and affirm it. And then use this opportunity to build and bridge. Now, let's validate and affirm that, 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 that emotion, your commitment to our schools, your wishes to have everyone included, including yourselves. Thank you for coming to our board meeting. We haven't had, had this many people at a board meeting in forever. Thank you. Now, let me use this opportunity to tell you what we do. You see, we promote thinking. And I talked about what we do with thinking. And that requires us to look at multiple perspectives. We connect to our academic standards. See, I know what the standards say in New York State. I know what they say in Missouri. And what we're doing, quite frankly, is, is aligned very closely to the standards that have been passed by our state. And that's what we do in our classrooms. And you know what else we do? We actually promote a love for humanity. I love all of our babies, all of them, even those who are gender non-conforming, those living in poverty, those, the black and brown, the white, I love them all. And when I see young people feeling a certain kind of way, i.e. marginalized or oppressed, I'm going to do something about it. Oh, and when I see something that's not looking good with the data, if I see a particular demographic group that's not doing well, I'm going to do something about it because I love my children. And see, that's called a love for humanity. Someone also calls it anti-racism, but I'm not going to use that term because that can be a trigger. See, I'm going to now validate and affirm why you are here, recognize the passion that you bring into this space, because I felt that too. But now I'm going to use this as an opportunity to talk about what we do. We connect to our standards. We promote thinking. We're listening to our young people who are begging us to do this work. And we love humanity. You see how I just did that without even using those trigger words that uh, people uh, allowing folks to push away from the table? And at the same time, I'm validating and affirming why folks are even coming to the conversation. That's what we as school leaders need to do at this moment, because we got to call people in and not call them out. So I think you're you're speaking to like some of the some of the backlash has been tr triggered or or sparked by this idea that there's professional development or classroom instruction that puts children or teachers or people in general on kind of an oppressor index, right? You know, if, if you, um, you know, if, uh, or a privilege index and, and Tricia McManus, uh, kind of addressed that. Uh, and I, I want to just play, play that, uh, that clip now, if, if Mike can do that. The, the people that are this, this anti-critical race theory are saying, you know, just by the nature of your birth, you are now made to feel bad because of your privilege and your, and your, and your whiteness. Oh my gosh, that's exactly, so, so for us to just ignore that, but that's exactly what racism did for how long by the nature of someone's birth and color. You, you were treated like a second-class citizen. And so just to say, well, if we address that now, um, we are creating racism is, is I, I don't understand that. And so as a, as a person who's done a lot of exploration around race and around my own privilege and around what it means to be a, a white woman, um, I do not get offended in a training that talks about you come from privilege and you are, you know, I just, I don't get offended because, um, because what's happened to so many groups of people over history of time and, and you got to just like put your own guard down and go, how do we make this better? So, so that's kind of her reaction to this. Um, you had a, you had a somewhat different reaction that I think comes from, you know, she, her reaction as a white woman was, we got to get over it. And your reaction as uh, an African-American man was, we're going to help you get over it which I think is very generous of you. <laughs> Far more so than me. 
<laughs> so yay. Yay on that too. <laughs> I think I think it's important for us all to recognize when we all confront our biases and blind spots, there will be an element of guilt. We've all felt that guilt. And we're seeing that play out in our school board meetings right now. I've been guilty when I really reflect on how I've been a constructor of code of conduct policies that have resulted in young people who look like me and Mark being expelled or excluded. I've written those policies. And so when I really reflect on it, I feel a certain kind of way. First, I began with defending why I wrote those policies. And then I sort of evolved when I moved from that guilt to a sense of responsibility for being better. That has taken me years. So please know when I'm saying I I need to validate and affirm the emotions and the guilt and the anger that comes into our spaces, we've all had to have that if we're truly confronting our blind spots and our biases. I think um, it's it's the work that you've also done in Ithaca that has um, given a lot of other people some hope around how you can dismantle the system as it was designed to only benefit a few, right? And one of the things that you guys did was you immediately got to work and started unpacking board policy that was written in an oppressive nature. You then went and revamped your student code of conduct, right? And I haven't gotten to the board policy piece yet. That is the work that we're we're working on. But I can tell you um, that handbook was written in a very oppressive nature. And this is the first year that we're rolling out our new our new handbook, which has eliminated a lot of, of terrible language in there that constantly landed us on the Office of Civil Rights uh, hit list because of disproportionate suspension rates of African-American kids. And we're moving to a no suspension policy on level one, level two infractions. Um, and we're gonna redesign how we look at just the lens that we look at how we operate and working with our kids. Um, It's important that everybody, we talk about implicit biases and how we all have to work on checking those at the door. You know, when you think about this whole conversation with CRT, you know, we tell people that um, none of what we're doing is designed to shame a white person. Now, should you feel some kind of way about what happened in in history? Yeah, you should. You got a heart. You're going to feel some kind of way about it. At the end of the day, I know my staff is 67 to 70 percent of my staff is white in this organization. If I'm out here trying to shame white people because I'm asking you to 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 learn about implicit biases, to understand how to operate in a culturally responsive teaching model and in a culturally responsive school district, if I'm out here trying to shame you. I'm not going to have a workforce to educate my kids. It doesn't it just doesn't make any sense, you know, for people to try to continuously paint that narrative that everything that we're out here doing is to to make white people feel bad or to shame white people. I I don't I don't want I don't want sympathy from you. Right. The sit whatever the, the circumstances that I was raised under by the way that this system was designed, that is what it is. What I want is empathy. I want you to have an understanding and I need for you to not have low expectations because that's what plays out. You have low expectations because of how history has played out. And all that does is perpetuate low expectations, hopelessness and failure and a cycle of poverty that we can never get out of. So, you know, for me, that's what we're trying to do here. Educate people to approach what we have to do in educating kids through a depth, through a, through a resiliency lens, not a deficit lens and to check your biases at the door because we owe that to these kids. That's important. The lenses that you, the lens that you bring is super important because that's, that's how you approach your interactions. You know, we are not going to be able to change the landscape of who teaches our children overnight that was also systematically wrought through legislation as well. So we know, you know, we know and understand the beauty and challenge of the Brown legislation and how it has shaped what, who's in the classroom right now. But what we can do, as you said, is really challenge people to name where they sit in their understanding and how they view the kids in front of them. Um, And we have to get that done. We have to make sure teachers, educators of all levels really 
are owning the fact. I think we t- we had a Karen and I had an opportunity to talk with Dr. Jackson from Chicago and talking about their recent successes and how they have been having among the highest growth of their students in the nation and how people in their own district did not believe that the success was real because at the end of the day, people don't believe black children can be academically successful. And so we have to be willing to have a person, if not outside and out loud in their mind, recognize the truth of what they have believed for so long. Uh, that don't, they have, um, that's really hard. I don't, that's really hard. Oh, those are facts. I don't even know. I, mm-hmm. you, know how, exactly. you know what the kids say now? They say, say less, right? I guess say less, just do now, more, right? right. Say, say less, less do more. You, how you about just, that? You just <laughs> kind of dropped it, but you, you're absolutely right. You know, people don't, people automatically assume, and I've seen this play out in Kansas City, you know, because our district, we've been, we've been outpacing the state the last couple of years. You know, we've closed gaps. Our black kids in every tested area has shaved it by 50% against black kids in the state. We've almost eliminated the achievement gap for white kids against white kids in the state. And our Hispanic kids is the slowest growing group, but we got some things that we're opening up this year to help them. I, I, I can tell you that is the question that always comes up. If you're if your black kids are performing or, and they're showing this kind of growth, you must be doing something wrong. You must be cheating because people because people don't. And, I, and I've said this. People don't understand. Um, I see how it plays out. I, I saw some tests get thrown out a couple of years ago because of a form error when districts dropped 30 MPI points, which is Missouri Performance Index points, and our kids in our district didn't drop that much. And it was like, wow, you know, that well, that can't be right. You know, so there's must be an error with the form. You know, I, I, I look at all of that kind of stuff and I'm just like, you know, and then we go on and I got the data. The data is the data. It's there on the state website. It, it the state, the last state report card in 19, speaks to the progress we've been making, but it's because of what you said around the mindset change, right? Getting out of that, I feel sorry for you, I'm going to allow you to skate, and getting in the mindset that you are brilliant, that you are highly intelligent, that you can be educated, and the the creative can-do mentality. I learned that from a superintendent a long time ago when I was in Houston. We need to have a can-do mentality, and those of you who don't, you probably need to go on a professional development somewhere and stay. Don't come back. And I just right. I've taken that mentality. Right. <laughs> yes, that misplaced compassion that a lot of people have because of the circumstances. We've decided that the circumstances into which children are born is the inevitable shaper of who they may or may not become. And we have named children by circumstance as opposed to naming them in a circumstance which is a very, very small but critical shift in how we see and understand and approach our children. So so I will link to the, in the show notes, I will link to the conversation that Tanji just mentioned with Dr. Jackson. Uh, it was about, um, it was, it was about my new book, Districts That Succeed. I'll just plug it because um, it sounds like Dr. Bedell and Dr. Brown uh, Kansas City and Ithaca should be part of the next iteration. I, yeah, so that'd sure. be great. <laughs> um, but uh, the subhead is breaking the correlation between race, poverty, and achievement. So I will I will link to that. Um, I know both of you are really tight on time, so I wanted to give you one last opportunity to kind of do some kind of closing thought. Um, Dr. Bedell, I, I don't know how you, you know, how, how you top what you just said? I th- <laughs> Me either, but go but, for it. Uh, but if there's something something we haven't talked about that you you feel uh, we should talk about, I I think what you both talked about about some kind of solidarity with your fellow superintendents seems like a good idea. Principals and teachers also need that, um, and I and I hope I hope something along those lines happens. But but do you have any closing thoughts? The only thoughts I have is to just tell people who are out here trying to navigate and um, do their jobs and, and do it the right way. Just just understand when you get at this level, um, there are no safety nets. 
So part of, of you being courageous is to also realize that in being courageous, you may fall and there is no net to catch you, but it doesn't mean that you can't recover. Um, I'm not asking people to go out and be martyrs in this. What I am asking people to do is to really understand context, learn the history of the respective districts you serve, understand that you can do something. You may not be able to go as far as I've gone. Right, there's articles where I've called out city council for perpetuating systemic racist practices through economic development. But I have context as I've given you all of those facts early on. Know your context. Know how far you can go. Don't be Luke Skywalker uh, when he went and tried to fight Darth Vader and he wasn't ready and he got his hand cut off. We all can do something, but we have to know where we are and then seek advice from others around the country. There are a lot of people around the country that can really help protect you from uh, ev you know, eventual pitfalls by just engaging and creating an alliance by talking to people. So that would be my advice, but we have to do this work and we have to understand that sometimes it's okay to be a martyr in doing it. You can sleep. That's the approach I'm taking. Nobody has their hands in my pocket. Nobody controls me. Um, I'm here to do the work for these children. And I'm not going to be afraid of, of elected officials or, or any other folks out here that don't want to see an equitable learning institution in place for these children. If, if I could, <laughs> I hate to follow that, but if I could add on and leave folks with a reflective question, what privileges are you prepared to give up? to disrupt oppressive systems. When we look at our data, we can't see it unless we believe in some kind of human hierarchy, we know that something's wrong with our system. So we, that means we must do something to change it. And to change it, it's gonna require us to give up some privileges that we've all embraced. One of those privileges is a right to comfort. A right to comfort is a privilege. And in our industry, we feel like we must be comfortable at all times. And that right to comfort, if you're going to be comfortable, you're not disrupting a system that has failed generations of young people. So let's give that up. And another thing we're going to have to give up is, you know, being defensive is a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to push away from the table, to say, I'm right, you're wrong, only one right way. You see, you got to give that up. You know, safety. Mark Bedell and I, we get threats because of the conversation we are leading right now. We have folks who literally make up stuff about us to discredit us and to slander our names. You, we, I've had to reflect in a real way, this conversation that I'm leading, which is making people uncomfortable, which is at the same time disrupting a system, is, is getting so much resistance that folks don't want us to be here no more. So I'm comfortable with being able to give up that right to comfort, that notion of being defensive, and even my own safety for myself and my family at times to disrupt that system. Because what we hope, Mark and I, what we hope we're doing, because we know we won't survive this ultimately. Because I don't know of any superintendent who has had these conversations for an extended period of time who has survived it. But what we hope we've done is inspire somebody to take our places when we've gone. Wow. Thank you for the opportunity to do that. Wow. Well, kind of mic drop uh, for both of you. I have learned so much from both of you. Tanji, I know you have, uh, yeah. you've been taking notes the whole time. <laughs> That's why my head's been down. <laughs> I've just been writing and reflecting and just hearing two black men that I get the privilege to call doctor um, is something that gives me great joy. I have a nephew who I get to call doctor. And so um, having to, the privilege to join you two gentlemen in this conversation and hearing the truth that we know we won't survive this for the long haul. Like that powerful truth is something that I don't think people recognize and I don't think people necessarily appreciate. Um, and it gives me great one, joy, two, angst, because when people like you two know that you're not going to survive it, then 
will there be somebody as courageous to come after you? Knowing what you all know, knowing that it takes tremendous resolve and it takes ironclad will and it takes what I would call, um, it is an act of rebellion in and of itself to have you to say, I am standing up for the children who look like me and those who've experienced the same types of marginalization as I have. Um, that is an act of, of systemic rebellion that I don't know if a lot of people have the resolve to do. So it has been just fantastic to be on this call with y'all today. Likewise. Yeah, I learned thank a lot today, you so please. much. We want to thank Dr. Mark Bedell, Dr. Luvelle Brown, and Dr. Tricia McManus for providing such important perspectives as school district leaders. And thank you to Zoe from Kentucky and Avery from Maryland, who provided key perspectives as student leaders. As teacher Sharifa Mason said in our last episode, Generation Z deserves to be taught accurate, complete history. They know it and are demanding it. We want to share a few other voices as well. Here is a high school student from San Antonio, Texas, whose family has lived there since Texas was part of Mexico. I think it's important to note that I've never heard the words critical race theory used at the beginning of a lesson in any of my classes at school. Um, but hearing it now, it just, what it, how it's kind of intersected with my life and what I do. Um, with my extracurriculars is just how it's a response from my government officials that are supposed to represent me, how like the response to a growing student population of uh, students of color um, and how it's almost as if it feels like they're afraid of the people in my generation and how diverse we are. And um, they're using just, just using the three words critical race theory as um, a way to scare everyone into thinking like we're being taught how to all be radicals in school when really that's that's not the case at all. I just remember like reading that textbook and hearing like the Mexican soldiers being painted as like horrible people who like didn't were soulless and like wanted to kill everyone right and just hearing that about uh, your community or a, a large part of the community that's represented in schools. It's just not, it doesn't, it makes students like carry around this lie that uh, they're like excluded in history or like they're the bad guys in history or that they didn't contribute any knowledge to what our nation or our um, state has become. Like carrying around that lie is really harmful and we shouldn't have to do that. And here's Avery from Maryland back to speak to that same point. Before I started to learn more about my history, and I feel like uh, there are lots of students of color that can relate to this, but it really hurts your self-esteem to not understand your full history. And I mean, so I'm African-American, like my ancestors were enslaved people. So to think about, wow, we've been here for 400 years and there are still all these disparities, you can't help but look inward and kind of blame that on yourself. And you start to wonder, you know, I mean, maybe there is some merit to the racist things that people are saying. And even uh, it hurts everybody because children who are like, oh, I don't understand why we have affirmative action, this and that, it breeds a lot of just like distrust and uh, just issues between different races, white students not understanding, like I said, like why we have things like affirmative action. And so it was really, really eye-opening for me and really helpful to learn about things like redlining um, and the campaigns to, you know, segregate neighborhoods that was done by the government, the backlash after reconstruction, things like that. And it helps you start to understand um, a, a little bit more context about why we are where we are now. And you don't blame yourself or like your people. Here is a high school student leader from Kentucky. There's a lot of discomfort in even having conversations like these, but part of our work as, as a youth-led organization um, is, is eradicating that, is telling the, the true narrative of what our country is made of and recognizing that for so many students, the history that we're learning right now, the quote unquote whitewashed version of our American history 
is just is uncomfortable for a lot of students in our classrooms right now. And we fail to recognize that every single day. Um, so, you know, in some ways, maybe maybe discomfort is an opportunity for us to look beyond what we've been taught to unlearn everything that we've been taught before about, you know, why we shouldn't be having these conversations in a school environment because they could be too biased or they can make people uncomfortable. Um, but look beyond that and look, look at it as an opportunity for us to be able to grow as a country, but also as individuals, as, um, you know, people that are going to be leading our democracy at one point. And I, I think for us to be able to get to that point, we need to recognize that that the stakes are too high right now for us to miss this opportunity of um, promoting these conversations in our schools. Here's Zach, another high school leader from Kentucky. It does have to start out as an uncomfortable conversation and it should make students uncomfortable. I think that that's extremely important to learning. Finally, we want to give the last word to Trisha McManus, superintendent of Winston-Salem, Forsyth County, North Carolina. Our students do need to learn history and they need to learn it accurately. And that is because they've got to be part of changing the future. And they have to understand what happened in the past. And so to just not really uh, share it with them or to not allow them to learn it is, is a disservice. Thank you to everyone who talked with us for this episode. We want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast, including, but not limited to, Robin Harris, Nicole Grayson, Karen Lomax, Jack Fleming, and Keith Curry. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast. Our theme music is composed by Joser. This is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. See you next time. Bye.